One day, Jesus and his disciples stopped at an inn. The landlord asked, What can I get you? Jesus said, Just 13 glasses of water, please. More on that later. So, Mother's Day here in the UK has been and gone. I have three children. I got one card, and that was from husband. To be fair, they all had valid excuses. Daughter has a COVID-infected household. Younger son is in Italy, where it's not Mother's Day until May, so he didn't realise. Elder son, well, elder son has a newfound concern for the environment and doesn't believe in one-use cards. He did, however, bring me a lovely lavender plant, so that made up for it. It's a good job I have resigned myself to the fact that as they all have children of their own now, my role must fade into the background. I had a good few years of it, so I mustn't complain. Anyway, husband looked after me. Breakfast in bed, dinner cooked, yummy chocolates and flowers. So nice to be spoiled. Facebook, of course, was full of Mother's Day messages. Either glowing testimonies of mums, or the we're thinking of all the women who find today hard type posts. In one post I saw a friend mentioned not only her own mother, but all the women who had played a significant role in her life, the ones who'd supported or listened, who'd been there for her. And it occurred to me that I never really had that sort of figure in my life. I was 18 when my mum died. My gran, who'd virtually brought me up, was a strong character, but wasn't really the gentle, loving kind. Though she met all my physical needs, she wasn't approachable. Last week I met a younger cousin for the first time for ages, and we reminisced. She said she remembered my gran as a scary woman. I told her she's not the first to say that. Though I wasn't scared of my gran, I wouldn't have run to her for a cuddle either. So when I was bringing up our children, there wasn't a woman I would turn to for advice. My mother-in-law lived a long way away, and we never had that sort of relationship, which was my fault without a doubt for keeping to myself. But as I said to husband recently, our children turned out okay. They're all good people with good sense and good morals, and they are wonderful parents. And we all get along, odd, short-lived tiffs aside. As daughter hadn't seen me on Mother's Day, the day after she invited me to go for a walk with her. I say walk, but it was more of a route march. She habitually walks quickly, and while I thought my walking speed was adequate, it's too fast for George, I had to up a gear or three to keep up, and we had to ensure we maintained a steady speed to complete the route and be back in time to collect granddaughter from school. It was a lovely opportunity though to walk through the country lanes on a beautiful day, dally on the beach, and make our way back through the woods now full of primroses and violets, and with wild garlic just shooting up. It was a good mother and daughter time. We're led to believe that Jesus was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. He wasn't married, which was unusual, as young Jewish men tended to be wed by the time they were 20, and he might still have been living at home. From what I've read, commentators, or people who know these things, seemed to think Mary was a widow by this time, so having her eldest son living at home with her would have been a great help. She would undoubtedly have come to rely on him about the house, 
getting rid of spiders and things. And she would have known she could depend on him. So when she notices a problem, she turns to him. John, very early in his gospel, tells us that Mary and Jesus were both attending a wedding. Weddings were big affairs in those days, and the feast could go on for a week, with most of the village being in attendance. When younger son married an Italian girl, we were excited as it meant an Italian wedding, not just a trip to Italy, but with the Italian food to go with it. Younger son and his bride were married in the little local church, and while they were having photographs taken, the guests went on to the hotel. There, laid out to greet us, was a huge table covered in canapes and little snacks and goodies just to keep us going until the main meal. Well, I would have been happy just eating the canapes and taking chunks out of the whole Grana Padano cheese. In fact, I probably did eat too much of it. Anyway, then came the sit-down meal with, wait for it, ten courses. And the waiters kept offering us more of everything. And with some of the especially delicious dishes, it was impossible to resist. Then we had a little break before the evening party and another three-course meal. Fourteen courses altogether. And it was all delicious. But even so, the mother of the bride worried in case her friends and families didn't think it was good enough and would gossip about her. It was very important to keep up appearances. Much like it was in the Jewish villages in Christ's day. To run out of anything at a wedding feast was more than an embarrassment. It would bring shame on the family. John doesn't tell us whose wedding it was, but they might have been relatives of Mary's or close friends. So when she notices that the wine is running out, I can imagine her biting her lip and wondering what she can do to help. What she does is gently nudge Jesus. They have no more wine, she whispers to him. Now I can imagine Jesus sighing. Oh, why are you involving me? It's not my time yet. But regardless, Mary turns to the servants and tells them to do whatever he says. My first thought on reading this is that this could be a Welsh man or Jewish man. Don't listen to him. He'll do what his man says. But however we read it, what is clear is that she has a sense of expectation. She expects him to do something. It might be because Mary has known, since the angel first appeared to her, that her son was going to be no ordinary man. From conception to the words of the prophets in the temple, when she and Joseph took him as a newborn baby, she knew her child was extraordinary. But that in itself doesn't seem to me to be enough to make her turn to him and suggest he do something about a mere wine shortage problem. Maybe Jesus was in the habit of doing little miracles about the house. John tells us very clearly that this was the first recorded miracle of Jesus, but that doesn't mean he hadn't done any before. Mary might have witnessed some, so she knew he could make things happen. Or it might just have been that, as I said before, Mary simply knew she could depend on him. She may not have had any idea what he would do, but she knew she could rely on him to resolve the problem. She had faith in him. And this last argument also helps explain why Jesus appears to change his mind. Initially, he says to his mother, no, it's not my time yet. But nevertheless, he does act. 
Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water and then to take a glassful out and give it to the man in charge of the feast, who declares it to be the very best wine. We're not told why Jesus changes his mind, but one commentator I read suggested that when Mary first spoke to him, it was as his mother. But when she told the servants to do whatever he said, she was demonstrating faith in him. And it was that demonstration that persuaded Jesus to perform a miracle and save the family from shame. A little aside here, the same commentator said that, just like the rest of us, Mary needed to show faith in the Saviour. Simply being considered good enough to bear God's child and bring him up wasn't a guarantee of salvation. She needed to trust in him. Anyway, on the grand scale of miracles, turning water to wine to help save a family's good name doesn't sound like much, especially if you compare it to raising the dead or controlling the weather. But I find it encouraging. It says to me we can ask God for anything. Nothing is too insignificant for him to care about. And the wine Jesus produces isn't bargain basement vinegar, but the very best. So again, not only can we bring any request to God, but we can expect the best. We can ask for the best. I'm not talking gold-plated Ferraris here, but the best for our friends and families and the world. I've been praying for healing for my grandson who has long COVID. Encouraged by this idea that we could pray for the best, I prayed that he would not only get better soon and be restored, but be even better than before. He's a fast runner. I asked he could be faster. Praying and having faith for healing is something I really struggle with. So like the father of the sick child, I have to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I find that a really helpful verse. When Mary asked Jesus to help in this situation, and certainly when she saw the miracle he performed, I wonder if she realised that this was the beginning, the beginning of his ministry, and very soon the end of his life. Would she have been so keen to help if she had known it was going to take her son away from her in a few short years? Everything about this story speaks to me of a good mother and child relationship even the way Jesus addresses his mother. He says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? It's possible to read that sentence in an abrupt way. Dear woman, why do you involve me? As if he's telling her off. She should know better than to bother his son with unimportant matters. But I don't think that's the way it's said, not from Mary's reaction. Mary gets a brief mention in the next section, but the only other time she crops up in John's Gospel is at the foot of the cross. There, Jesus uses the same form of address. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he sees his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, usually thought to be John. Jesus says to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he says, Here is your mother. Even as he is suffering horribly, and by now gasping for breath, he still takes care of his mum. With those loving words, he makes sure that someone he trusts will be looking after her when he's gone from this earth. Even at the end, she could depend on him to care for her. What a great relationship. The sort we'd all like with our parents or children, excluding the crucifixion bit, of course.
Sadly, that isn't the case for many people, and Mother's Day can be difficult for those with mothers, as well as those who've lost their mothers. So the question is, can we experience a mother's love from God? Though the prime image in the Bible is of God as man and father, there are plenty of references to God with female motherly attributes. In the very beginning, we're told that God created males and females in his own image. It's not just man who has God's hallmark stamped upon him. Women too share godly traits. When someone acts in what we think of as a motherly way or demonstrates a mother's love, that's God's love shining through. Everything we have, we have from God. In case there's any doubt, listen to these words from God as recorded by the prophet Hosea. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Well, that certainly sounds like a mother to me. So if we miss our mothers or never knew them, or if it seems we've lost them to a fog of dementia, we can turn to God, safe in the knowledge that his love is strong, that his compassion and forgiveness great, that he will never forget us. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Thank you for listening.